Well, good afternoon, church. I wonder if you've ever been part of a group where there was obvious disunity. Maybe a team at work, uh, perhaps within your own family, maybe even your church. Not GBC, of course. For me, it was playing basketball my junior year of high school. Um, We had an amazingly talented team. We were the favorites to win the state title. We returned the state player of the year who would go on to have an NBA career. We had size, we had shooting, we were deep. We kind of had everything you could hope for, but we had no unity. Um, That was the only sports team in my life, out of all the sports I've played and all the teams I've been on, where there was a fight at practice. And we actually had multiple fights at practice. Um, Our team had little cliques and factions, and we lacked leadership amongst the players. Um, We would go on to lose in the quarterfinals at state and finish in fifth place that year, which most teams would happily take. But for us, that was a significant underachievement. And it was also the first time in my life I had no joy playing basketball. Fast forward to the next year, my senior year, I was one of only two full-time returning varsity players. And the other one, in the offseason, busted up his shoulder and was going to miss the entire year. He was also the only one on our team above 6'3". Um, so we had one guy who was 6'3". He weighed about 160 pounds. Uh, we were a bunch of little nobodies. And in a conference of nine teams, we were picked to finish eighth. Um, thank goodness that Hood River Valley was still in our league at that time. Um, but we had a chemistry and a unity that no one could account for. We loved playing together. We loved cheering for each other. We loved the success of each other. Um, We were unified in a very special way. Um, Our own Butch Hudson, Mike Riegelman were on that team, led by the famous legendary Coach Johnson. Thanks for being here tonight, Coach. Um, That team had very low expectations, and we went on to finish second in our league out of nine and made the playoffs. Now, we didn't finish fifth in the state. We weren't as good as the team the year before. Uh, But I had way more fun playing with that group than I did the year before when we finished in fifth place. Unity can make a huge difference in both what a group can achieve and also just the way they enjoy being together and working together. And our text today is from Ephesians 4. So if you have your Bible, please open to Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. And it's all about the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, We're going to look at the text in three sections. So our first section is verses 1 through 3, where we are going to see the call to unity. And then verses 4 through 6, we're going to see the foundation of our unity. And finally, verses 7 through 16, where we're going to see the means of our unity. Before we look at that, please... Join me in prayer for our time in God's word. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Father, that is our prayer now, that the light of your word would shine forth, that we would see Jesus We would grow in our knowledge of Jesus and who he is and grow in our knowledge of your great glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, before we jump in, let me give um, some quick context of Ephesians 1 through 3 so we can see what we're jumping into in Ephesians 4. So in chapter 1, Paul unpacks the God's glorious plan of sal- salvation that he had planned since before the foundation of the world. We see there that all who are found in Christ have redemption, the forgiveness of their sins, an inheritance. We have God's own spirit living in us, guaranteeing that inheritance. And then Jesus, after dying for our sins and being raised, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, uh, above all rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Then chapter 2, Paul's going to drill down into the details of that. Those whom God has called and saved in chapter 1, we find them that they are dead in their sins, okay, walking in their sinful ways, but that God in his mercy made them alive in Christ again. It's all in Christ. Our union with Christ is the key. And now that we've been saved, we walk differently. We used to walk according to the flesh, and now we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. In the second half of chapter 2, Paul explains the, the amazing truth that God has brought together both Jew and Gentile. Okay, they are made one in Christ. So the amazing realities of God's grace are not exclusive to Jewish people. They are for everyone. We heard this last week in the great sermon by Todd Miles when he came and he he preached on Revelation 4 and 5, that God has saved a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So the church is made up of people who are once hostile towards each other and now live together in unity because of what God has done in their life. Then we move to chapter 3, and Paul explains his commission to preach this gospel of how God saved his church and is building his church and is reconciling and unifying the members of his church. And then in verse 10 of chapter 3, we see a theme that is sprinkled throughout Ephesians. So in in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, I, I mentioned briefly, we have a picture of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father, and we are told that he has been placed above all rule and authority and power and dominion in the heavenly places. If you fast forward to chapter 6, when Paul instructs us to put on the full armor of God, it's because we are in a battle. We are fighting, and it's not against flesh and blood. Who is it against? The rulers and authorities and spiritual forces of evil that are in the heavenly places. So in chapter 3, verse 10, we read that, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So God is triumphing over his enemies through Christ and through his church. And through the church, God's brilliant plan, his wisdom is going to be made known. Who is it going to be made known to? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God's plan to defeat cosmic evil. It began with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it continues with the church that Jesus' death bought. And the good news is that Jesus is victorious. The the final war is not over, but we've already won. And we turn to chapter 4. What should this triumphant church look like when the rulers and authorities look at the victorious church? What should they see? They should see unity, oneness, 
a body knit together around the same truths. Uh, And our passage today is going to show us what biblical unity looks like. It is not just people being nice to each other. It's not people avoiding hard conversations. It's a people that shares deeply held convictions, that loves each other, and out of that love is willing to both be patient and gentle with one another and also to speak hard truths into one another's life. So that's where we jump into chapter 4 now. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, the call to unity. And Ephesians is like almost all of Paul's letters, where the first half is Paul teaching doctrine and theology. And the second half of the letter is practical, how we should live in light of that doctrine and theology. So Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, we start with the therefore. Therefore, Paul says, because of all the truths that I've just taught you, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that salvation that has been brought to you by God. Because God took your spiritually dead corpse and made it alive because he has done this for countless others from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the planet, live out that calling in a worthy way. God has both called us to himself, and he has called us to be part of his body, members of one another. So we see what that worthy manner looks like, because we are called to unity. That is the core and center of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We're to walk with humility, he says, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, all those things that we are called to do there are commanded with the aim of unity. That we might be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Live as one. So that's going to mean things like don't think too much of yourself. Remember that you were a dead man walking, walking in sin, And then God intervened. It's because of God. So live humbly. Be patient and gentle with one another. Bear with one another because you love each other. And sometimes, we know it, we just have to bear with each other. Sometimes we do. Okay, it might mean assuming the best about what someone said or did. Bearing with one another might mean overlooking small offenses It might mean making an allowance for the shortcoming of others. I also want you to notice that in this text, we are maintaining unity, not creating it. Paul's going to talk about unity in two different ways in our passage. We see the unity of the spirit here is talked about, and later it will be the unity of the faith. Our unity in the spirit is an already present reality. It's like being part of a family. We share the same blood. And so therefore, I am part of that family and have some semblance of unity, okay? I'm a stump, and I share unity with a lot of other stumps because of that. Uh, The same is true for the church. We have all been adopted into the same family. So there is a present unity that is just a, a fact of nature because of what God has done through the cross of Christ. Our goal is to act in a way 
so as to keep the peace of that unity, to show off the reality of that unity. And Paul wants us to be eager to live like this. Are you eager to bear with one another? Are you eager to assume the best about others? Are you eager to overlook the offenses of others? Because of what God has done for us, spelled out in chapters 1 through 3, we are to live lives that reflect the oneness that we have in Christ. That's what the victorious church should look like. And we're going to see the foundation of this reality in verses 4 through 6. Let's look there. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Did you pick up on a theme? These three verses Paul teaches, these certain realities are just the basis of the foundation of our unity. It is just flat out true that there is one body because God made it that way. And those of us who make up that body, we share in one hope. It's the same hope. We have a hope that God will do as he has promised, that he will ultimately and finally save us and unite us with him, that we will see Jesus, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That's the hope that we share. And those of us that share that hope and share being part of the same body share one faith. This is talking about a set of facts, a set of truths. We all believe the same things that Paul has already taught in Ephesians 1 through 3. That's how we become part of this body. We are agreed on the truths of the gospel. And we're going to see more clearly in a bit that you cannot have biblical unity apart from the truth. So all of us were called to form this body when we are brought into it by one baptism, we are told. It's not talking about our water baptism, as important as that is. It's an image of the, the cleansing and regenerating work of the Spirit in our lives. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13, which says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So when you became a Christian, a member of the body of Christ, the Bible pictures that as being baptized by the spirit. That's what's being talked about here. So these are the things that we share in common. One body that shares the same hope and believes, the same faith, the same foundational truths, and who were regenerated and brought into that body by baptism from the Holy Spirit. We also see, that's only four of the ones. There's seven ones in that little short passage. We see the Trinitarian nature of this foundation of our unity. There is one Spirit. There is only one. Only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And only one God and Father. So there are echoes here of John 17, where Jesus uh, prays the high priestly prayer. We are to be one because God is one. So because of the work that God has done in calling us and giving us new life, Paul wants us to work to maintain the unity that Christ gave his life for. We should be one because God is one and because we have the most important things in common. Our beliefs about who God is and what he has done for us. Everything else should pale in comparison to that. That's not to say that there's not secondary matters 
that, you know, that they're not all unimportant. There are some that are very important. And they might even, as, as we recognize being part of the one body of Christ, it might mean we fellowship in different local outposts, local churches, on some of those secondary matters. That's possible. But we don't then say, all right, well, we over here, are, we don't believe that women should be pastors and elders, and you do. So therefore, you're not a Christian over there. We don't do that. We recognize that we're part of the same body. There's some beliefs that might cause us to worship separately. Um, but we need to know that our beliefs around the gospel are what's most important, and everything else should fade away. And we come to the, the third section of our text today, and we ask, what does this look like then? How do, we, how do we do it? How do we live in this unity? We've gotten some keys and some hints so far. Paul's going to unpack the rest of the way that it's about us using the gifts that God has given us to serve each other so that we will mature in the faith. Let's look at verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we've already been told to maintain the unity of the Spirit in verse 3. And now in verse 13, we are told to attain to the unity of the faith. Okay? Unity, that's what the church should look like. And it, we see here that it's all about truth and knowledge and maturity and doctrine. Biblical unity is never achieved by compromising those things. But how do we mature in the faith? We have a vital role to play in each other's lives. We serve each other with the gifts that Jesus has graciously given us. Now, to back this up, he, Paul quotes Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. If you were to go back and look at Psalm 68, you will see that it's about God conquering his enemies. And actually, in verse 18... It says that God received gifts from men. Paul says, he, he quotes it as, he gave gifts to men. So did Paul butcher the scriptures? Did he use it for his own gains? Ah, that's not what it really meant, but I'm going to make it mean this now. No, what I, I think Paul is doing here is he is reasoning through this Old Testament passage theologically. When he reads that God has ascended on high, he immediately thinks, Jesus. That's Jesus. God is already on high. He can't ascend. Only one divine being could ascend on high. 
And it's the one who descended first, Jesus. So, Paul sees Jesus in the text, and he sees a Jesus who is victorious over his enemies, as he talks about in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. He is seated at God's right hand, far above all rulers and authorities, and power and dominion in the heavenly places. So, where David in Psalm 68 talks about God conquering and receiving gifts, Paul is understanding theologically, as he's uh, mentioned in Romans 11, which is quoting Job 35, that who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Paul knows, of course, God needs nothing from us. So he reasons from that, that Jesus then took the spoils of victory and he has turned around and given his people gifts. Um, Verses 9 and 10, uh, we're not going to have a lot of time for, but Paul basically shows us the implications of saying that God ascended, as quoted in Psalm 68. It has to be Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who descended first from heaven and ascended back up. So for Paul, Psalm 68 proves the incarnation, that Jesus is divine, and he has ascended back to heaven after being down on earth. So let's do a a quick recap following Paul's train of thought. In Christ, God has defeated all of his enemies and he has saved a people for himself. And this victorious church should, in light of all that God has done for us, live in the unity achieved through the cross. We're to love each other, bear with one another, be patient with one another, and so forth. And now Jesus has given his church a diversity of gifts to serve one another. And it's all for the purpose of unity. Okay, and this unity is anchored in in sound doctrine, in right belief. And this is the aspect of our unity that we can grow in. We can't grow in the fact that we are part of the same body. That's just reality. We can attain to grow in unity around the truth. Okay, so all of this points us to unity, what, what he calls the unity of the faith. Um, he gives us these gifts that we might mature and be sanctified and grow in our understanding of who Jesus is. Those are the purpose of the gifts that we have and have been given by Jesus. In verse 11, he starts listing out some of the gifts that he gave. Jesus gave the apostles and the prophets. Paul told us in Ephesians 2.20 that those were for the foundation of the church, okay? The church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. He also gave evangelists, men like Paul and Barnabas and Timothy, who would go on missionary journeys and share the gospel and plant new churches, okay? Work that's still being done all over the world today. Um, And then he says that he gave us shepherds and teachers, which he seems to link together here, Um, by not putting the word the in front of teachers. So it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Um, The word shepherd here is just uh, the word for pastor, or pastors and elders. Um, We know from 1 Timothy 3 that what sets apart a pastor or elder is that they are able to teach. God has given these types of gifted people to the church to do a couple of different things. One is to equip us to do the work of the ministry 
and for the building up of the body of Christ. And when we understand and really grasp the truth that pastors are not here to do all the work, but rather to equip us to do it, that can be paradigm changing for us. Okay, it's not just a, a we, don't, we don't want a mindset of the people who get paid to do this are the ones who should do this. I once worked at a church to kind of work my way through college, doing kind of um, working on the grounds and doing maintenance and whatnot. And I was out mowing a back lawn one day, the lower lawn, and I got a call on my walkie-talkie that some people up in the building needed help. So, drop what I'm doing, hike back up to the building, find where they're at. I walk in and ask how I can help them, and they said, oh, there's probably at least a half a dozen people in there kind of decorating tables and stuff. So oh, this table in the back, we would like it moved um, to the other side of the doorway. So I picked the table up and moved to the other side of the doorway <laughs> and tried not to have a stunned look on my face. But on the inside, I was like, you have a lot of capable adults in here. And somebody thought, hmm, this table needs to move five feet. Let me go to a new uh, random part of the building to try to find a walkie-talkie to call somebody to come up and do that for us. Now, these people were there volunteering and already serving their time. They were, I'm sure, wonderful people. I don't remember who they were. They were not trying to put me out. They were not trying to be thoughtless. But you can see how a mindset had taken uh, shape in them, had been ingrained in them, that there's, there's people who get paid to do this. This is not the kind of work that we do. Now, I don't think that's ever really been the MO at GBC. It's never really been our mindset. We've kind of always had to have an all-hands-on-deck kind of attitude, which is awesome. And it's going to be that way even more so. Maybe we've gotten a little comfortable with air conditioning and cushy chairs. It's going to be that way even more so as we move back to Dexter in a couple of weeks. But it's more than just the behind-the-scenes work even that Paul's talking about here. Paul's saying the work of discipleship requires an all-hands-on-deck approach. Equipping saints for the work of ministry and building up the body is so that we will attain to a unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So the the way we serve one another and the way we exercise our gifts should be to that end. Um, the unity of the faith is a set of beliefs that we share. And, and here it would be mostly what Paul has talked about in the first three chapters of his book. So the teaching we receive is critical to our growth and maturity. And it's not just the teaching we get on Sunday. We actually need to be very careful of the inputs that we're taking in, who our teachers are. Um, the kind of teaching and things we're listening to and reading. Uh, we want to see each other grow in maturity. Uh, Paul calls it mature manhood to the measure of the fullness of Christ. So this work is led by our pastors, but we all have parts to play. We're to serve each other so that we may grow in the knowledge of Christ. Having solid doctrine and the unity that comes from having those shared beliefs. So when we set up chairs at Dexter, it's not a meaningless task, but it's one that enables people to hear God's word preached to them and so mature in the faith. When our music people get up here and exercise their gifts and lead us in song, yes, it's so that we would give God the worship and glory and honor that he deserves, but also that we might sing the truth together and so mature in our knowledge of Christ. We've all got a role to play. A church where the pastors and elders are doing most of the discipleship is actually not a healthy church. 
this is contrasted, our maturity is contrasted by Paul. Um, the goal is to grow into mature manhood, he says. Contrasted with an immature believer, that is seen as a child. Verses 13 and 14, it says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. An immature believer is one who is easily duped. They'll buy into false doctrine and bad teaching. In fact, for all of us, we need to be on guard because there's areas where we may be very mature and not easily duped, and there may be others where we, we are easily deceived. That's why we need each other to make sure we're following the right path and not straying from the truth. The threat to our unity is actually those that are being tossed to and fro. It's the children, those that are immature in areas of their faith. Way too often the people who are accused of being divisive are the ones that are actually holding on to the truth and warning those who are deviating from it. So let's be clear. Those that are believing false doctrine, those are the divisive ones. Author Daryl Harrison had a quote that kind of took me back at first, but the more I thought about it, I think it was spot on. He said, biblical unity is inherently divisive. I was like, unity is divisive? What are you talking about now? But the reason is that the gospel draws hard lines. There are certain truths that just cannot be compromised if we are going to call ourselves Christians. So biblical doctrine divides those who believe it and are in that unity of the body and those who do not believe it. By nature, it will divide. Okay, these gospel truths are the truths that unify us. And there's a strong temptation to try and unify around much less important things these days. We have to be careful not to embrace that kind of unity over biblical unity. We see this in politics on both sides, where people feel more unified with those who share their political beliefs than they do with those in their own church. COVID has taught us a lot. A lot of people have left over things that perhaps they shouldn't have. Okay, so we need to fight to maintain unity with each other by bearing with one another in love, even when there's disagreement on some of these things that are important, but they're not the most important. So for example, there are faithful Christians who love Jesus, who think critical theory, critical race theory is beneficial. I think they are deeply misguided. But I actually still have a duty to strive to maintain unity with them. The unity that we have in the gospel should supersede any of those other things. And probably, honestly, the best way to do this is have a conversation with people who think differently than you do. What, hear why they believe that. Maybe they have some good reasons. Maybe they're ignorant. Who knows? Sit down and have a conversation. You might not end up agreeing, but at least at the end, you'll be able to honor one another in the way you agree to disagree. And then press into unity that we share in Christ around the gospel. So if we're to do the work of ministry, 
us, not the pastors, as the pastors equip us, the work of discipleship, of bringing each other to maturity, what does it look like when one of us starts to stray or we see somebody being carried away by every wind of doctrine? What do we do? Verses 15 and 16 tell us. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So both when we see a fellow member flirting with error, and honestly just in our normal interactions with one another to help prevent us floating into error, we need to speak the truth in love. This is a way we can all serve one another. This is done to protect each other from falling away that we wouldn't be snatched up by false teachers. We speak the truth in love so that we can continue to share in unity as we mature in the faith. And I love the balance because I need it. I love the balance of this verse. We speak the truth and we speak in love. I suspect that you might have a tendency like I do to kind of fail on one side or the other on this. If you're like me, you can get so passionate and focused on the truth that you can kind of forget about the love part, which perhaps can lead to harshness or just a general feeling that I care more about winning an argument than I do about the person I'm talking to. Now, the focus is on correcting error in our passage, but our desire should always be for that person that we're talking to, that they might avoid danger, that they might mature, that they might know Jesus. That's why I need that reminder, to be patient and gentle and to love The other temptation or danger is focusing so much on the love part that we compromise on the truth. These would be uh, people who are conflict avoiders or those that imagine that a hard word necessarily means you aren't being loving. The problem actually isn't so much an excessive focus on love. It's an unbiblical definition of love. If we love our fellow members who are being sucked into some false teaching, then our desire will be to help them see the truth. A shepherd who stands by as wolves come in and does nothing doesn't love the sheep. A loving shepherd fights the wolves off. And now we, the job of our shepherds, is to equip us to be their under-shepherds. So we all have a role to play. I want to give one more Word of warning here as we speak the truth and love to each other. In our day and age, uh, people have been trained, even subconsciously at times, um, to wear victimhood as a badge of honor. They're sometimes actively looking for ways in which they've been wrong. I mean, we created the term microaggression so that we could figure out, you know, we can spot the smallest little offense and make a big deal about it. We live in a culture where saying something that somebody disagrees with is considered by some to be violence, actual violence. So this can be a huge barrier in speaking the truth in love to one another, not knowing how the other member might respond. So I think this is very important. Whether or not our truth speaking was done in love 
is not determined by how the recipient feels when they hear it. Let me say that one more time. Whether or not our truth speaking was done in love is not determined by how the recipient feels when they hear it. Hopefully we can hear it and not get defensive. But just because perhaps I get defensive if there's a legitimate criticism of me, that does not mean you are unloving. Okay, that can be hard. When somebody tells us our beliefs are wrong or they're concerned about us, it's easy to get defensive. So don't equate love with being nice. Sometimes just being honest and telling a hard truth is in itself the loving thing to do. Love actually requires that of us. We see this in Mark 10, actually, with Jesus and the rich young ruler. You might be familiar with the story. The young man comes to Jesus and wants to follow Jesus. He says, Jesus, what, what do I have to do to follow you? And Jesus tells him, oh, you just got to obey the commandments. So the guy's even more excited. That's great. I've been doing that my whole life. Okay? Put yourself in this position. If somebody walked into our church, we'd be like, awesome. Let's baptize you. This is great. <laughs> Jesus, though, responds a little differently. Verse 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus still wants him to follow. But out of his love for this young man, Jesus told him the one thing that would cause him to not follow. The one thing that would cause him to walk away all sad. Jesus knew that love required that he expose the idol in this man's life rather than letting him follow him and have that idol be ignored. And the implications are profound for us. Are we willing to love people enough to expose their idols? Even if it means they might walk away? I mean, that sounds so mean, but it's actually loving. And of course, we want to exemplify the traits already mentioned, like gentleness and patience and humility. There are unnecessarily harsh ways to speak the truth that we want to avoid. Uh, but there's times when a firm, unnuanced word is needed. So remember, right before Paul in Galatians 5, right before he lists out the fruit of the Spirit, you may remember, he talks to some people in his church, some members that are causing some problems, and he tells them to emasculate themselves. And then he's like, oh yeah, and the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. We could look and go, Paul, you just, that's not the fruits of the Spirit, you just were so mean to these people. We've got to be able to deal with some of these complex things and be able to harmonize those two things together. There is a time where a harsh word is the actual loving thing to do. Okay, so we need to leave room for that without the accusation that somebody's been unloving or that they lack the fruit of the Spirit. And may God give us the wisdom to discern when to be gentle, when to be firm. When the world looks at the church, when the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places see us, they should see the victorious body of Christ, the family of God, living with one another in the unity that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. 
They should see us holding fast to the truth of the gospel, growing in love, bearing with one another in love, and speaking the truth to one another in love. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would make us this kind of people. Grow us in our knowledge of Jesus and help us to hold fast to the truth and have the courage to bring correction to each other where our beliefs don't line up with your word. And that we would do all these things out of love for each other. As Jesus prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.